Hello everyone, welcome once again to Reason for Hope. We're so glad you're joining us today for our broadcast of Reason for Hope. Uh, in case it's your first time with us, is an hour-long live show which is guided by your questions on the Bible. We're all about receiving your questions on Scripture and using Scripture to answer those questions. So you can send your questions in through the multiple online platforms that we're streaming live to. I'll be going over those in a moment. And we have some wonderful guests here who love the Word and love the Lord and love to answer your questions to the best of their ability and uh, even more so the, the help of our Lord and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so that's what we're all about. If you have a question, it could be a verse or passage of Scripture. could be something you're going through in your life. You'd like a biblical perspective. What does God say about different lifestyles and choices that we make and those kind of things. Maybe even other religions as they relate to Christianity, things that you have heard, contradictions, things like that. Any honest question that you have, as long as you know that the Bible is where we find the answers on this show on A Reason for Hope. So we are certainly glad that you're joining us. Please do send in your questions as we go along. We would love to receive them. My name is Dave Robson. I'm your host today. With us today, we have Pastor Scott Richards. He's a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we're broadcasting from. It's good to see you. Good to be seen. Yes. Yeah. So doing well? Yeah, doing great. Yeah. Doing great. Seems yeah. like it's been a, been a while since we've had you on the show. And yeah, well, Monday there. was Labor Day, so we had That's the day right. off. That's right. And then Tuesday, I'm not normally here. That's Wednesday, right. here we are. Here we are. We're glad to have you. Thanks for, for being with us. Also, Pastor Sean Richards, your son, our regular over here. How are you doing? I was here yesterday. You were used to, yes, yes. Me and you, we're, yes. we're strong. Yeah. Strong, the faithful, and all that good stuff. Well, Don't thank jinx you. It. Yeah, no, right. Yes. I know, indeed. There's been some weird allergies or something going around. I've been a bit. <laughs> I don't know what's uh, blowing around in Tucson, but yeah. yeah, there's always something. Well, whenever the weather changes, so yeah, our true. monsoon seems to have blown out. So yeah, yes, definitely yeah. interesting weather we have. Well, yeah. thank you both for being here and making yourself available, and being so faithful to answer people's questions on uh, this show. We have a lot of fun, and uh, we're glad that you are out there too. Well, as I, as I mentioned, a reason for hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, five to six p.m. here, Mountain Standard Time here in Tucson. Arizona or wherever it is that you are joining us from around the world we love that we're able to stream all around the world it's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson so keep that in mind when you're trying to find us Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson that will help you out on the different platforms you can go to our website calvarychristianfellowship.com especially if you're someone that's not really on social media or if there's a, some kind of problem technical issue there or whatever um, calvarychristianfellowship.com is a great home base for you if you go to that watch live tab that will take you to our live page. We stream our services there as well. We have Sunday services and a Wednesday evening service. And we stream uh, this uh, show as well, Reason for Hope, on this same place. So as we're live right now, when you go there, you will see the video. You can sign in with the username and send your question in on the chat function. I'll be there with you receiving those questions. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show and you'll see a schedule of upcoming events so you can see what's coming up as well. ccftucson.online.church takes you directly to that page or again follow the uh, watch live tab from calvarychristianfellowship.com we're on facebook as well facebook.com slash ccf tucson or just search for calvary christian fellowship of tucson you'll find us there uh, we'd love it if you would um, uh, you know like and share and all that good stuff like our page and um, share the video you can send your question in on the comment uh, thread as well there on facebook i will be watching and waiting there as well so thank you for joining us if you're on Facebook with us today, again, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. We have an app for your mobile device as well. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store, and you can download our app, watch us on your mobile device, 
and we also have a channel on Roku and Apple TV. So if you have those devices, Smart TV or Roku Stick or something like that, you can watch us there. Just go to your uh, channel store and look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We're live on YouTube as well. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel. You'll find us live there. It's a great place for archive as well. If you go to that live tab, uh, anytime we've been live, it will archive there for you. So if you missed the show or you wanted to recap on something, that's a great place to go as well. A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe and, and uh, click on the notification bell and all that stuff there on YouTube. We'd appreciate that as we grow the ministry here. Uh, Pastor Scott here, I just introduced is on Twitter. Um, Scott R for H is his handle. Scott letter R number four letter H. He posts highlights from the show and commentary on things going on in the world. There's so much going on as it pertains to um, end times and uh, biblical prophecy and things like that. Very interesting times we live in. So as well as funny things and entertaining things, there's some informative stuff there that he uh, tweets as uh, um, as we go along there on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, follow along with Scott there, Scott R4H. We're on Rumble as well. We're not live on Rumble, but we post videos. If you're on that platform, a reason for hope. Bible Q&A and our email address should you wish to use that for any reason questionsforhope at gmail.com questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com you can send your question there and we will be getting those as well welcome if you're listening to us on the radio drive safely if you're on your drive time and keep in mind that uh, you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded so we're not live with you on the radio but questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address you can send your question there and we'll try to get to that on our next show. So whatever platform you found us on, we're glad that you have. Once again, send your questions in, get them in there early, and we'd love to parcel out the time to answer your questions on the Bible, let's say a passage of scripture, maybe something you're going through, or something you're facing, you'd like a biblical perspective, anything along those lines, any Bible question, we're glad to receive those and answer those today. Uh, well, we, before we take another step, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray for us? And I just would. Dedicate this time to the Lord. Yeah, let's yeah, do that. Great. Lord, thank you so much. We have this opportunity to be able to gather in your presence. We pray that your spirit would speak uh, not only through us, but in us and to us. And uh, Lord, I thank you for each and every person's investing their time, joining the broadcast today. I pray uh, that you would build them up in their faith, that you would encourage them, that you would show them uh, maybe particular areas of application in your word uh, that you desire to work out in their lives so that they can walk closer to you and be more like Jesus in their character. I can't think of a better blessing than that. So we ask not by might or by power, but by your spirit, you accomplish this and a whole lot more in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Indeed. Thanks for that. Well, before we uh, take some questions, Pastor Scott, is there anything going on in the world you'd like to share with us? Sometimes you give us a bit of a world update. Well, um, prophetically, uh, Things seem to be uh, proceeding apace as far as what we uh, talked to you about uh, regarding uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia moving closer and closer together. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as the week unfolds. Uh, but there is a story that ran in uh, the Jerusalem Post that uh, created a bit of a dust-up spiritually uh, on Twitter and raised the question that comes up from time to time. The provocative headline is Israeli scientists make synthetic embryo without fertilized egg. According to a study, the method opens new horizons for studying how stem cells form from various organs in the developing embryo and may one day make it possible to grow tissues and organs for transplantation. Well, uh, this uh, Weizmann Institute of Science in Rehavot, Israel, uh, published in the journal Cell uh, that embryo models of mice 
were created outside of a mouse's uterus solely with stem cells cultured in a petri dish, that is, without the use of fertilized eggs. Uh, the researchers have developed ex-utero ex mouse embryonic stem cells derived from embryo-like structures called synthetic embryos. Uh, the method opens new horizons for studying how stem cells from various organs in the developing embryo uh, may one day make it possible to grow tissues and organs using the, the synthetic embryo model. Now, by a synthetic embryo model, maybe the best way to wrap our brain around what we're talking about here is a quote from Professor Jacob Hanna, who was part of the team. He said, the embryo is the single best organ-making machine and the best 3D bioprinter. We tried to emulate what it does. Uh, again, uh, the idea behind all of this is uh, the idea of programming a stem cell uh, at its most basic level uh, to, uh, well, do what stem cells do. That is, in their earliest stage, before they've differentiated into different cell types, see if they could uh, create an entire uh, being just from a stem cell rather than from a fertilized egg. You know, we hear about test tube babies and so on, mm -hmm. but uh, basically that is combining a uh, egg cell and a sperm cell together and then putting it in and planting it uh, after it's been fertilized. That's really what's talked about. So this takes it a step further. Uh, you're not dealing about egg and sperm, you're dealing about a stem cell. And so a lot of people are like, oh man, uh, haven't people watched sci-fi movies before about messing around with this sort of thing? And oh boy, you know, is this um, playing God or, or just show that man now has the ability to create life in the lab? Well, before people get too hot and bothered about all of this, all that uh, science is doing at this particular point is not creating, say, a stem cell out of, say, a mass of chemicals and somehow giving them uh, the ability to live. Uh, it's taking a living stem cell and poking and prodding it in a, in a, a chemical way, um, not, say, to uh, create a liver tissue or a fingernail tissue or eye tissue, but to uh, create the whole shooting match. And uh, rather than this being a picture of the fact that somehow life could have evolved accidentally or that man now has godlike prerogatives, all man's doing is uh, manipulating something that God has already created. Uh, we were talking a little bit about this uh, before airtime, and I think, uh, Sean, your uh, comment on all of this was, uh, you know, a scientist saying, hey, we've created uh, life in the, in the lab. We can, we can now do what, uh, what you can do, God. And God's response to that was, okay, great, get your own dirt. <laughs> so, uh, you know, rather than this being some indictment of God's unique status as the creator, all it's really showing is the miracle of creation, that uh, virtually in every cell of our body, we have DNA. And in each of our unique DNA, uh, we have uh, the blueprint, if you will, for everything that makes us, us. Uh, you know, it, it's almost kind of like this uh, telescoping down of, uh, of the intricacy and the awesomeness and the wonder uh, in which uh, we are created. Uh, saw a, uh, another interesting article that talked about the fact that uh, scientists have now determined that DNA only works on the principles of pure mathematics. That was the quotation from the article. Uh, well, you know, not having uh, been the greatest math student in my academic career. I slogged 
all the way through uh, trigon calculus and never really felt like I understood it all that well. But uh, the one thing I will tell you is this, is that uh, operating in pure mathematics isn't something that happens accidentally. It requires great forethought and uh, great intelligence to be able to uh, flow in the language uh, that is math. And so when science uh, makes these kind of statements and just tries to throw evolutionism on the top of it, uh, I think that's very interesting. There was also an article uh, that uh, created uh, quite a bit of controversy. A fellow uh, said that he, uh, as a, uh, a uh, expert on climatology, had an article published in Nature magazine about the effect of climate change on forest fires. Uh, but now that he is no longer working as a climatologist, he's now working for a, uh, a think tank, uh, he spilled the beans and said, uh, the dirty little secret is any PhD level person who wants to have an article published in Nature has to take their findings and tweak and torque them to the accepted narrative. Uh, and that uh, any uh, of the uh, results that you come up with that uh, say would argue against the idea of uh, the absolute devastating effects of global warming, for instance. Uh, for instance, the fellow mentioned that in uh, his article, in his research, he determined that uh, because of uh, the increase of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, uh, we are having uh, over-the-top uh, food production as a result of all of that. Mm. But nobody brings that up, you know, because that's like a positive rather than right. a, a negative. <laughs> uh, you know, we'd rather talk about the alleged polar bear population, which, by the way, is exploding. But the interesting thing was, uh, you know, you, you, you find out that uh, contrary to popular belief, the white lab coat set is populated by human beings with their own biases, uh, with their own agendas and their own narratives. And I thought it was really fascinating because uh, when I wrote uh, my book, Reasonable Doubts, Is Your Faith Built on Fact or Fiction? Uh, we talked about the strange case of Forrest Mims, who was a physicist who wrote home physics experiments for Scientific American magazine. His home physics experiments were always well received until he let it slip that he believed in intelligent design. Mm. Well, when that got out, uh, the, uh, the usual suspects, the mob, came and demanded that Scientific American uh, you know, get rid of this uh, Philistine. And so they fired him and Forrest Mims sued them uh, for firing him. And they came back and they said, well, okay, uh, we'll, we'll go our separate ways. We're gonna pay you some damages and we'll allow you to publish a few more articles, but, but that's it. And uh, Chuck Colson uh, in his book, Who Speaks for God, had a great quote about that. Uh, you know, we tend to look at science and scientists as individuals who've received uh, divine revelation in some way. You know, the white lab coat is a new priestly vestment. And unless you tow the orthodox party line, uh, you're going to be persecuted by the great inquisition. A heretic yeah. like Forrest Mims couldn't pass the test of orthodoxy in uh, popular science, mm -hmm. uh, scientific American, I should say. And, uh, and so he was cast out. Well, the same thing is true. And, you know, when uh, people make the argument, well, you don't see in any of the accepted scientific journals anything regarding intelligent design or creationism. Well, of course you don't. But the problem isn't with uh, the, the development of uh, significant research in the field. The problem is at editorial. And uh, these individuals are like, oh, my gosh, if we, you know, 
let slip that you know my goodness that uh, there's intelligence and and uh, mathematical precision in dna and that that would imply a design we got to throw evolution on there and a few billion years on there or we're all in trouble we're going to lose our jobs mm -hmm. so uh, you know and the, the interesting thing the article talked about was the glut of phd uh, holders these days used to be a select handful. Now they're all over the place. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you keep your job in academia is to either publish or perish. And uh, if you don't toe the party line, uh, as is determined by a very unscientific narrative, um, you're out of you're out of luck. So whether it's evolutionism, whether it's climate change, uh, just because a person says science says, well, science doesn't say anything. All science is is a method of trying to determine uh, what the reality of our world is all about. Uh, science can uh, speak to, if you will, the subject of how things are, but science doesn't have an opinion. Science shouldn't have a bias. Uh, right. Science should lead wherever science is going to lead. And the funny thing is, science always leads back to the fact that uh, science in itself was established during uh, the Enlightenment based on the idea that uh, an intelligent creator has made his creation in such a way that it can be understood by intelligent human beings. That was the foundation stone of scientific inquiry. Well, individuals like Hume and Voltaire and Rousseau and, uh, and, and so on uh, came along and, uh, you know, again, Darwin was basically just a disciple of these philosophers and uh, said, no, 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 we, do, we don't really need God to explain all this. We can explain it all through natural process. Well, you know, coming back to our stem cell uh, thing, well, you know, we can see that a mouse embryo is possible just by using a stem cell. And some people say, well, that shows that stem cells aren't special. I would say the opposite is true. The fact that you have this basic stem cell from a mouse that has all the genetic information necessary to make little mousies just from this one stem cell uh, tells me that uh, rather than doubting or denying a creator, we should celebrate uh, the existence of the creator and his not so subtle uh, re revelation of his presence, even in things like this. Mm. So a couple of things we just want to let you know about. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Appreciate it. Well, we have some questions coming in. Thank you for that. We can uh, jump right in if you guys are ready. Let's sitting do comfortably. It. Question from goodness of mercy. Is it true that we die as we go up when we are at the rapture? I heard my grandfather uh, told me uh, we die as we go up to outer space, etc. And only those at the millennial kingdom are transformed. Uh, they are the ones that don't taste death. So at the rapture, we will still die because flesh and blood can't enter heaven. So okay. when we rapture, do we, do we become deceased? Yeah, um, <laughs> obviously we can talk about the doctrine of the rapture as well on its own, but with that as a working assumption, you believe in that pre, post, trib, mid, whatever. When we're talking about the concept of where the word rapture comes from, being literally caught up to be together with the Lord in the air, um, even if we're going to go with a borderline wooden interpretation of that passage that will be in the atmosphere, it doesn't mention us going beyond that. So the idea of us, uh, I guess, rapidly ascending to the point where our bodies fall apart and then God reconstructs us on the way, I think is a little bit too splintery. 
if I'm going to keep up with the <laughs> idea of a wooden interpretation. Uh, if on the other hand, we're going to, and you mentioned other passages, 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, the focus of that conversation was the idea of a resurrection body, that like Jesus demonstrated in his resurrection, we too will be like him, and that's also verified in 1 John chapter 4. Now, when we're, t- or is it 3? 1 through 2, right? First John 3, 1 through 2. Yeah. Uh, everyone who has this hope yeah. in, within him purifies himself just to see his pure tangent back to the scripture that we're talking about. Um, the concern that a lot of people have mainly about the distinction of resurrection bodies happening before, during, or after the millennial kingdom, I think largely comes down to, and this is a legitimately controversial position, uh, what was meant in Revelation chapter 20, when it notes that this is the first resurrection. There's some people who would interpret that as to say that at this point, all of the saints are truly brought to a living and conscious state. That's the soul sleep position. The more modern and uh, common view is that at this point, the culmination of all those who would receive resurrection bodies until the new heavens and the new earth will be fulfilled at that point. Everyone else is a believer is either going to survive the millennium in the bodies they had, or they won't be glorified at all. They'll die apart from Christ. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. And the third position, and I think there is some weight to this, is that it's in reference to Daniel chapter 12, in regards to the righteous dead, that at this point you're standing before the Lord, the handing out of rewards, the crowns of glory and so forth that you'll carry into eternity will of course be given out at this point. Every position has its weaknesses because there's always one passage that we forgot to overlook and Revelation makes a lot of references. So here's what I think we can do with what we are told, goodness mercy. Uh, First of all, uh, all respect due to your grandfather, but the point of emphasis about the timing of our resurrection bodies, I think, bears weight if we're going to the position of, again, not the wooden analogy, but the idea that to be put in the presence of the Lord is heaven in its own right. The body that we experience that in, he can sort out along the way. We're not told enough to be dogmatic. But if we're going to ask, well, how do those who are raptured, survive the process, will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Well, just read the passages. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 note that we will all be changed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 notes a more specific example in noting that those who aren't physically dead but are caught up to be with the Lord join those who are in the presence of the Lord the same way but through a different means and that there'll be an exception, not the rule through history. That, I think, is enough that we can go off of and say, come soon, Lord Jesus. As far as the semantics of, oh no, am I going to be just put in a position where it feels like a flashbang went off in my face, and then I feel like, oh, hey, Jesus, that was fun. Uh, Not likely. Uh, Just stick to the text that we have. Go through 1 Corinthians 15 in its entirety cross-reference 1 Thessalonians and Daniel 12, and then remember Revelation 20 makes a broad statement. As far as its total significance, I think hindsight will tell the tale, but what we can work with is centered around that. I think it's either a reference to judgment or the culmination of those who would benefit from Christ's resurrection in the millennium. Now, again, we may find out more in the future. might live to experience it within our lifetimes. I hope so. But what we can work with is, I think, limited to that. I'll leave it there. Yeah. 
Uh, to me, I think it just goes back to First Corinthians 15 uh, and uh, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we, all, we shall all be changed in a moment at the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Mm-hmm. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. It uh, doesn't seem like there's a gap there where you die and then you get resurrected again. Uh, it seems like a seamless transition. We shall not all sleep, the euphemism for Christian death, but we shall be changed. In the same chapter. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So. Well, goodness and mercy, thank you for... It sounded like I was <laughs> using that as an expression. Both of them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> goodness goodness of, and mercy. Goodness of mercy. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. I hope that helps you out with that and clears some of that up for you. Thank you for being part of the show. Uh, I had a question from an anonymous source. They said that someone I know took their own life um, and were not believers. I am grieving. Of course you are, and our hearts go out to you. Um, Are they in hell? Uh, It's a common question we have. Is, you know, suicide an unforgivable sin? I mean, even for a believer, is it something that that's it? You you are then condemned? Um, Well, uh, there's two questions there. um, Let me me start with the first. Who goes to heaven and who doesn't? Yeah. Right. I mean, What's the unforgivable sin? Yeah. Um, you know, again, John chapter 3, uh, Jesus laid it out pretty plainly where we are told uh, that uh, uh, for God so did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they are done in God. I mean, Jesus summed it up by saying, the one who uh, hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not enter into judgment, but has passed from death into life. There's no plan B. Uh, you know, if you haven't taken God up on his offer of salvation, you by your own choice have chosen to spend eternity separated from God and all that that implies. Uh, you will stand before God at judgment and uh, have to give an account to him uh, based upon your own righteousness or mm. lack thereof. And uh, in the absolute holiness and presence of God, no one's going to say to God, oh, you got it wrong oh, you misunderstood me, Uh, oh, you know, I've got my side of things too. We're told every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, There's going to be no, um, you know, uh, F. Lee Baileys or, you know, dream teams up there arguing uh, someone's case. You're either you're in or you're out. You're a saint or you're an ain't. And so uh, if a person uh, lives this life, and goes into the next life without uh, availing themselves of God's free gift of eternal life, well, they will have their day in court, but only their own righteousness to recommend them. And I do not recommend that path. Uh, Anybody uh, knows uh, that a holy and a righteous God is going to have to be true to his attribute of justice and uh, not look the other way or wink at our sins. Uh, He's going to deal with them. Uh, And he can deal with them either by you dealing with them or by allowing Jesus and his death on the cross to deal with them. Uh, we receive that blessing and benefit through putting our faith and trust in him. But that determines 
our eternal destiny. There's no exceptions to that rule. Yeah. Right. And then when the question comes up, what's the unforgivable sin? It's not the espousal of atheism or the affirmation of these, you know, sort of behaviors or whatever. When it comes to sin in any context, it literally just means to miss. It's an archery term. You had the bullseye in mind, you didn't get it. Yeah. When we're talking about it in a moral sense, we're referring to God's nature. There's a purpose, a character to which we were modeled after, whose image we were meant to be created in, and of course that image has been fractured by missing that, by sin. So in the sense of which all sin is a separation or a deviation from God's character, Jesus only specified once the only thing, and it dubs right into what John 3 was saying, uh, what will ultimately make all the difference in eternity before him, and that is well, let me just read it. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now I've been an unfortunate witness to people who would take that uh, as a cue to then, you know, hurl profanity at the Holy Spirit and think that'll get these Bible thumpers to leave me alone. But that's not what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. When it comes to the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation, and for those of you who know me, my favorite member of the Trinity, his involvement in our salvation is by far the most personal. It was the Father's purpose, it was the Son's accomplishment, but it's the Holy Spirit's project. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you confirm, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that was a work of the Holy Spirit, right. that no one says that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And that the same is true, a la Galatians chapter 3, no one grows in their relationship with God apart from him either. But where does it start? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 16 that when he goes to the Father, he will send another helper. Notice it doesn't say, I'll resend myself. He doesn't say, I'll send the Father. He sends another helper that the chapter then goes on to say, bears all things that he has, and being deity, he of course would have everything. So this is identifying him as the third member in the ownership of all things. And what he would do is literally summarized in the legal term convict. Convict is, a, again, a court term that means to make someone aware of guilt. And Jesus pointed out three ways that he would convict us. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then goes on to explain the implications of that. But when you're being made aware of your guilt in regards to how you've missed God, what God has done to demonstrate our need for him, and the fact that we don't have that much time left, there is a judgment coming. All these things, and only these things, are the Holy Spirit's business in the mind and heart of a non-believer. So when it comes to your friend, for them to blaspheme the Holy Spirit would be to reject the idea that they're a sinner, to reject the idea that Jesus was right before the Father, to reject the idea that they will answer for how they've lived their life, suicide or not. And so if we then ask the question, how is that put in practice? It's literally in whether or not we receive forgiveness or not, which I think makes sense. Right. The only thing I can't be forgiven of is not being forgiven. That, that, that's about as straightforward as it can get. But then we take a step back and ask, well, how then do you put someone in the category of dying apart from Christ? And for that, I always default 
believer or non, I've done memorials involving suicides and it's never fun, but it is simple to answer. Not easy, simple. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Like it was talked about before, if God has made a system of judgment where even we can't mess it up, and yet somehow we did, so he sent the Holy Spirit to make sure he's personally part of the process, we can't take for granted the fact that this life is not only entirely in our hands, but even in the moments where we pretend like it is, what God can do in the few moments in between when we stand before him and when we still have an opportunity. Uh, you can describe it biologically as the flood of adrenaline that makes your senses so sharp that, you know, one second seems like an hour. But what God can do in the few moments of someone trying to take their life, even succeeding in taking their life, but seeing to it that where they stand ultimately before him is not the fault or neglect of you, the fault or neglect of them, or those around them rather, but solely between them and the Father. And he can be trusted to do that, to make sure that everyone has not only been given enough information, the Holy Spirit personally and dwelling and tugging on you 24-7 is in fact uh, not subtle, not negligent on his part, but then taking another step back and going, what do I know about God? Well, according to the Old and New Testament, Ezekiel 33, which we're going to be in tonight, and in Second Peter chapter 3, I don't know if the 3 is a common theme, but those right in later, says what? God's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, right. but that the wicked should turn from his way and live, that he wants to see their redemption. That's God's preference. And if he is going to do everything possible, even in the last few moments, not ideal, but he can work with that. So this is what I think doles down to the main issue in this question. When you're grieving especially for someone who may have died in rejection of mercy. Is it wrong to grieve? No. In fact, in every opportunity to grieve, I'd say that's the most appropriate, even for a believer. But the grieving that a believer has as opposed to a non-believer is with hope, an expectation that because they trusted in the promises of God, we can expect that hope to be fulfilled, what's literally called joy. Now, if that's not the case with your friend, then note they will bear the sole responsibility. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't their family's fault. It was between them and the Lord. If the Lord took advantage of those last moments and you see him, standing at the right hand of the Father, covered by his mercy solely because of his investment in them at the last moment, you can take hope in that. But in both cases, who's the common factor of the one who will do right by both of us? That's him, not us. Us in the hands of us is a mess. Us right. in the hands of him, well. Yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are sorry to hear that, that news, but hopefully that brings you some clarity and comfort in that we can trust that God always does what is right and we can uh, lean on that and trust in that in every circumstance. So thank you for that question. A question from Morgan. Uh, I taught a Bible study that born again means lay down your life for Jesus, die to your old thoughts and actions. Someone told me I was adding to the gospel and in danger of false teaching. Is this true? Well, that might be overstating it a little bit, Morgan. <laughs> um, you know, all those things that you mentioned there are uh, important parts of our growth in our walk with God. But specifically in John chapter 3, when we're talking about the first mention of B 
being born again. And this is a reference back again to the prophets talking about getting a new heart and a new spirit. Uh, you might recall the conversation Jesus had with the uh, expert in the Jewish law, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And uh, Nicodemus starts out by kind of buttering Jesus up and saying, uh, uh, we uh, know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So notice something, being born again, we've already kind of narrowed down the focus of what it is. It doesn't have anything to do with what we do in terms of growth in our walk with God. It has everything to do with how we enter into the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again, according to Jesus. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus explains, he says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So the idea of being born again, Jesus uses the phrase born of the spirit to describe it, speaks of the new life that we receive. We put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And boy, oh boy, do we need that new life. In the book of Ephesians chapter two and verse one, we are told that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedient, obedience uh, among whom we were also conducting ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the others. Uh, I'd say that's a pretty dim view of where we are as human beings. We're not just a little off. Uh, we don't need just some spiritual disciplines. Uh, we don't need to quit drinking, smoking, and chewing, and going with girls we're doing. Uh, we need a brand new life because we're dead we're dominated by Satan. We cannot please God. We are children of wrath. Uh, that is uh, who we are. You've heard of homo sapiens. Uh, well, that means thinking man. I don't know if we really do much thinking, but if we're really honest, the minute we're born, we are homo sinners. Uh, we sin uh, because we have a fallen sin nature and we can't please God. But God verse four, but who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what is being born again? It's being given a brand new life from God. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So that operation of God's spirit where he causes us to become spiritually alive, he indwells us through his spirit. We're no longer children of wrath, we're children of God. We are no longer separated from him, we're adopted into his forever family. We are no longer uh, just completely inclined towards sin. We have a new nature that delights in the will of God. Uh, and desires to do his will. Now, the things that you've mentioned as far as, uh, you know, dying your old thoughts and your actions and so on, uh, these are things that will go on once we are born again. But I would make a distinction between being born again, which is salvation, 
and the things you mentioned, which are the process that happens in our lives because we're born again, which we could call sanctification. And uh, boy, there's a lot of uh, subtlety, but a lot of confusion, a lot of very dangerous confusion, uh, putting the cart before the horse. Uh, some people will say, well, if you want to become a Christian, you have to turn from all known sin. Well, if I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, how in the world could I ever do that? Uh, there's a doctrine called Lordship Salvation that says you have to surrender every area of your life to the Lordship of Christ, and only then can you be saved, which always seems a little odd to me because uh, what it's saying, in essence, is you have to get yourself to a place where you no longer need saving, and then God will save you. So you know, that doesn't help me at all. Uh, it is by grace, God's unmerited favor, God's riches at Christ's expense that we're saved uh, and that, and by faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. So, you know, as well-meaning and certainly as essential, the things that you talk about as steps of growth are we don't want to get the cart before the horse, do we? No, and again, it's a big issue person could have been more gracious in pointing out the semantics of it, but when it comes to the word gospel, it just means good news. The news is the pointing of the direction, telling someone where to find salvation. Altering the gospel would be to say, and this wasn't what you were saying, Morgan, it was the idea of, this is how you get saved, which I'm sure wasn't your intent. Pointing people, informing people that you can be saved, that you can live a new life, is what people are pointed to. The destination is salvation, if people take up the good news and receive it personally, and then sanctification is the living experience. When people get confused, to use a traveling analogy, the gospel is the plane ticket, the attendance of the plane is salvation, the arrival at the destination is what we call holy living. But when we're talking about the differences between the two, as long as the, you clarify the difference, and this is what I think you can do the next time you're at that study, if they welcome you back, is the idea of, okay, what I meant was being born again, not the gospel. Being born again meaning after I'm saved. That's what this looks like, right. which is exactly what you said. But just, just be uh, careful about the distinction, and like anything else, make sure you quote chapter and verse when you make a claim. And I think, uh, well, even the neighborhood Karen won't uh, complain too much. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Morgan, for that, that question. I hope that helps you out with that. Good on you for wanting to teach the Word and do it accurately. Um, all the best to you in that pursuit. We have a question from Yari here. Uh, when you die currently, which part of you goes to heaven? Uh, soul and spirit, or just your spirit? I heard that it was just spirit. In other places, it's the soul and the spirit because we are triune. Nope. Um, what is the soul and what does it look like? Nope, so maybe nope, just nope, 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 nope. We are not triune. That is a word that means something very specific. Do not confuse it with three. The concept of three Tri is not, yeah, is different is not Trinity. <laughs> Trinity, <laughs> triune, is describing a very, very unique setting that only and only ever will apply to the true and living God. When the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are identified independently as the one and only God, for me to say that a human being is triune would be to say there is one and only one human being, but that because of the unique characteristics that only the one human being could ever express, all of humanity is now in, uh, uh, what is the number now, an eight uh, billion entity? 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So be very careful because you get in the realm of blasphemy when you attribute divine traits to human beings. That being said, three terms, soul, spirit, body. Right. What do those mean? Well, soul and spirit are used sometimes interchangeably in scripture, but if we're going to make a distinction, this is how it's usually used. Soul is a reference to your consciousness apart from your body. Spirit is the spark of life that separates you from a bag of pork, and the body is the bag of pork. You don't mind the image. Now, uh, when we're talking about the distinctions between the two, can your body live without your soul? No. Can your soul live without your body? Yes. Can your spirit exist without your soul? It's kind of the same thing, because in union with your soul and body, you have a spirit, you're considered alive to this world. On and on it goes. But just note careful attention in terms. When people are confused about what quote-unquote part of you goes to heaven, usually it's referred to as the soul, but even then we're told that those who are in heaven have some sort of temporary dwelling or housing so that they can engage with and experience the things that are in the presence of God. For example, Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was given a vision of paradise where whether it was a part of the body or in the body, I don't know, the Lord knows. But he noted that having a body, something that his soul could latch onto to use its eyeballs and fingers and smell and nose and everything else to experience what he experienced. Whether his body was left behind and he was given a temporary body, whether his body was in two places at once in a sense, or whether as people were uh, grieving at the pieces that were left over, he was able to be transported instantaneously and returned into two separate planes of existence, we aren't told. A lot of information there, I know. But the idea centered around that is that the body is how our soul would experience stimuli. Our soul is our consciousness, our personhood, but our spirit would be what's described when the two are united. That's why we're not just ethereal souls going around forever. The ideal isn't to be separated from this body, but joined to a body that is eternal, that this mortal puts on immortality, like 1 Corinthians 15 states. Now, again, is it accurate to say that even the way our body interacts with one another is a trinity? No, because our soul can exist independently from our body, but our body can't exist independently from our soul or spirit. The trinity all exists independently from one another while simultaneously being the one true and living God. So note that point. It's describing something specific, and I'm being strict about it because like the previous question about the gospel, this is that serious. Don't attribute things like being eternal, being able to create from nothing, being all-knowing, being all-present, those sort of things. It's saying like, you know, will we know everything in heaven? Blasphemous. Please make sure we understand the difference between us and God, and that gap will remain. But if, on the other hand, we ask the question, what's the difference? Well, we can see examples in Scripture, and people in heaven, for whatever reason, have bodies. So, noting the necessity of that, what part of us goes to heaven? Well, all of us, ultimately, the soul will be given a body, as a part of the ability to interact with God, but the point of emphasis in a passage I granted and plenty of others when we're being told, for instance, that John was caught up into heaven and he was in the spirit. 
and that there's variations on how that's to be interpreted. But noting the point when we're talking about this disembodied essence, we weren't meant to be just a soul. We weren't meant to be just a spirit, depending on the handling of it. It's all centered around what we are body, soul, and spirit, noting the union between soul and body, which we were created in and which God intends us to be forever. The only difference is this body will be in need of an upgrade before long. Yep. Yeah, Amazing. awesome. All right. Sounds good. Yari, thank you for that question. I hope that clears that up for you. Uh, let's see a question from Diane here. Thank you, Diane, for being part of the show and your question. Um, Hey, can you tell me why do the Baptists believe once saved, always saved, and Pentecostal believe you uh, can be saved, but you can also backslide? What does the Bible say about backsliders? Can you put some light on this? The, the old uh, once saved, always saved. Well, can you lose it? Well, it depends on which type of Baptist, but I would say that you've got a pretty good, healthy representation of both of these points of view among Bible-believing Christians. Some believe uh, in the doctrine once saved, always saved and people who believe this doctrine will lay certain stress on uh, certain scriptures that uh, seemingly uh, make the case for our great security uh, that we have in Christ. Uh, we mentioned already in the Gospel of John chapter 5, Jesus saying, uh, the one who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not enter into judgment but is passed from death into life. It doesn't say that whoever uh, hears my word and believes in him who sent me might have eternal life if he sticks with it to the very end. No, there's very absolutist statements there. Uh, you know, again, Jesus said that uh, the one who comes to me, uh, I will in no wise cast out in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 6. So uh, those who take this point of view, they'll look at uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that says, those whom he predestined, these he also called, and those he called, these he also glorified, and those he uh, justified, and those he also justified he also glorified uh doesn't seem like there's any room to slip through the cracks there however there are also passages in the scripture that talk about not taking our salvation for granted and persevering in our salvation uh, in the book of hebrews for instance in the book of hebrews chapter 10 uh, we are told in verse uh, 28 uh, therefore do not cast away your confidence which has great reward for you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of god you may receive the promise for yet a little while he who is coming will come and will not tarry but the just shall live by faith if anyone draws back my soul has no pleasure in him we are not of those who draw back to perdition or eternal separation from god but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So, you know, you have those who will believe in this idea of persevering in our walk with God, uh, not backsliding, as you mentioned the word there, Diane. Uh, and uh, you have people who say, well, it's impossible to backslide in such a way uh, that, that you lose your salvation. So uh, what point of view should we take on all this? I got to tell you, Diane, when I was in seminary, uh, and uh, even later on in my walk with God, I used to get into all kinds of discussions about this. And people have their scriptures, and other people have their scriptures, and they've got their theologies, and, and so on, their traditions, their backgrounds. But one day, uh, this really helped me, and maybe it'll help you. Uh, both of these points of view uh, are an attempt to answer a question. What about an individual who at one point had a profession of faith in Christ, but walks away completely and totally. Uh, I think of Charles Templeton, who uh, was a contemporary of Billy Graham, uh, did crusades in Canada, 
thousands of people came to know the Lord, but walked away from the Lord, wrote a book called Farewell to God, where he espoused atheism and mocked the gospel of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do with a guy like Charles Templeton? Well, the uh, you can lose its side. Pretty easy answer. Well, this guy must, might have been saved at some point, but people who belong to Jesus don't write books mocking him and uh, the gospel of Christ. So he had it and he lost it. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly, the once saved, always saved side, which is kind of the side that I came from, uh, is really saying the same thing about Charles Templeton. They look at a guy like this and they'd say, well, he might have done crusades and he might have led a lot of people to Christ, but how do we know he wasn't just faking it? If he wasn't faking it, he would have continued on in his faith. So obviously this guy doesn't know the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now here, Diane, is something that really helped me. I realized something in one of these discussions. Both sides are saying the same thing, what it really comes down to. it. They're both saying a guy like Charles Templeton needs Jesus. Mm-hmm. Neither side are gonna say, oh, don't go change it to try and please me. You know, you preach with Billy Graham, of course you're going to heaven. Uh, any, but on the one saved, always saved side would say, Charles Templeton, you need to come to Christ. Yep. Uh, the you can lose it side says, well, maybe you did know Jesus at some time, but you've clearly turned your back on him. You need to turn back. They're yep. both saying, Charles Templeton, you need Jesus. They're just yep. quibbling about how he got there at that point. So uh, maybe that, that helps you. You know, the, the point of view that I hold on the once saved, always saved, uh, can you lose it side of things is uh, something I think uh, we can uh, glean from Jesus' words in uh, John chapter 15. Uh, There Jesus said in verse five, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you'll be my disciples. As my Father loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it was Pastor Chuck Smith who said this once, and it really turned on the light for me. He said, you know, I believe in the eternal security of those who abide in a living relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. But I also believe in the eternal insecurity of those who don't abide in a living uh, and, and growing love-based relationship with Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to see how far away from Jesus I can get and still be in. Uh, I want to see how close I can get to Jesus today. Yeah. If I have that heart and attitude, then I don't have to worry about whether I can lose my salvation or not. Yeah. It's kind of like saying, you know, can I lose my love relationship with my wife? Right. Well, I <laughs> guess in theory uh, that's happened before, but... You know, if today I decide, you know what, Lord, just love my wife through me and uh, help me to appreciate her and uh, and just be thankful for all the wonderful things she does, uh, then I have to have to worry about that sort yeah. of thing because right. I'm abiding in that relationship. We need just to do the same thing with God. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Thank you, Diane, for that question. We should have time. <laughs> did, you, did you want to add something? Or if yeah. not, we can squeeze in Taylan's question here. We're right oh, at yeah. the end of yeah, the show. Absolutely. Uh, great. Uh, Taylan, hey. Uh, thank you for the question. How come the cowardly won't inherit the kingdom of heaven in Revelation 21.8? What is yeah. it about the cowardly? Yeah, a great capstone to the conversation about salvation. What do we know about how you get saved? Well, if you believe in the one whom he has sent, John chapter 6 and verse 29. If you confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord, John chapter 10 and verse 9. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9, on and on it goes. So if we're asking the question, what keeps you from that, 
you essentially are given a list because it doesn't just mention, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, sorcerers, adulterers, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. Mm. On and on it goes. But what essentially Jesus is giving us there in his revelation to the apostle John is what? These are the things that keep you from salvation. These are the things that people will commit themselves to in not receiving this, not receiving my promise through faith, not believing in the one whom he has sent, not confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. How does that look? Well, like the author of Hebrews was speaking to, there were audience of people who were afraid of persecution, so they kept Jesus at a distance. There were people who were afraid of offending their families, so they didn't get involved with the Jesus Mm -hmm. stuff, even if they believed that what he said was true. They didn't receive it personally because they loved father and mother more than him. Mm -hmm. They could be, on and it goes. The idea is that Fear is one of the things that can keep us from salvation. It's not an invalidation of salvation. Fear is a gift from God. It's the acknowledgement that something's dangerous. But if you misapply salvation as something that's dangerous rather than an ultimate help that does in fact cost something, that's the difference. Mm-hmm. The cowardly. Well, does that mean that if I have a disposition towards fear, I can't get saved? Your fear can keep you from getting saved, but if you are saved and you happen to have fear, that just means you have emotions. It'd be no more unreasonable than to say the happy will not inherit the kingdom of heaven in that sense of interpretation. The angry will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's an emotion, but how you use it, if it keeps you from the gospel, if it keeps you from the Holy Spirit's conviction, that's the problem. Yes, makes sense. Great. Thank you, Sean. Well, thank you for all your questions. Great questions today. Man, zips on by. Yeah, it sure does. Especially that second uh, half an hour. And talking of half an hour, in another 30 minutes, we're going to be going live again for our service here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We're in the book of Ezekiel. What chapter are we in? We're in chapter 33. We're going to be talking about uh, whether uh, it pays off to share God's word or not. Nice. We'll stick around for that if you can. If not, we'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. God bless you guys. Thank you for being part of A Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.